Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Greetings to our campuses, those who watch online, as well as all of those who are here. Our second Wednesday in Lent, as we're gathering together for our Wednesday night Bible study. I've been Wednesday, Lent is a time of uh, sacrificing and focusing on God. And some people fast or give things up. And I've been encouraging people to fast staying home <laughs> on Wednesday nights. So your version of suffering is to come listen to me. Doesn't help my self-esteem, but anyway. Now it's good stuff, getting in the word. We are doing a verse-by-verse -verse study through the New Testament. We're actually started in the book of Acts, uh, assuming the gospels were understood, and we're starting with the book of Acts, and we're going through it one verse at a time, and every time in the book of Acts where Paul stopped and wrote a letter to the church, or a letter was written, that's when we jump and actually study the letter. Uh, the first letter written to the church was actually the book of James, and... Uh, and that's why when you read it, it's got real strong Jewish uh, overtones to it. In fact, he starts out by saying in the book of James, my letter is to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. What's he doing? He's talking to the 12 tribes of Israel, to the, 12, to, to the Christian, Jewish Christians. Because at that time, Christianity was primarily Jewish Christians. They didn't even quite comprehend the idea of non-Jews even being Christians. I mean, it was just starting up. But so that's how he writes out his letter. The second letter is Paul's first letter that he writes to the Galatians because he's mad as a hornet because he just finished his first missionary journey. And when he came back, a bunch of people went behind him to these people who had converted and said, you know, you need to become Jewish now before you can become Christian. And he just goes off on them. It was one of the most entertaining uh, reads in the New Testament because he's, he's mad as a hornet. Uh, so we read through that. Uh, so um, this is when uh, he'd come through, uh, through here on his first missionary journey. By the time he got back, somebody was coming in trying to convince these people to become Jewish. He gets really torqued about it. They eventually have a big council in Jerusalem, and they determine that non-Jews do not have to become Jews to become Christians. They just need to believe in Jesus. Praise the Lord. All right, so now he's on a second missionary journey. He's bopping around. Now he gets way up in here into Macedonia. It's all new territory. And he's preaching the gospel in Philippi and Berea and all these, Thessalonica, uh, and uh, uh, goes through Athens, and he winds up in Corinth. Now he's in Corinth for quite a while. And while he's in Corinth, the first letter he writes from here is back to the Thessalonians. And we just finished reading that letter. It's really the most pertinent letter for us in a sense that uh, he's just dealing with people who just were without God in their lives and they came to God and they just want to know God and serve Jesus. There's no tie into Judaism. There's, so he doesn't quote a lot of Jewish stuff. There's not all the big argument about it at this point. And he basically just encourages uh, these new Christians. He didn't spend much time with them. So but when he's hanging out here, he decides to write a letter back to them to encourage them. Uh, basic Christian living. One of the things that he really harped on was, you know, earn your own bread, work with your own hands, don't be a slacker, pay your bills. I mean, he was real strong on that. He's about to go off on it again in his second letter. Told him, don't be sexually immoral. Christians should not be sexually immoral. We're a different deal now. Being a Christian is not like being a non-Christian who just believes in Jesus. Does that make any sense? Yep, I live like everybody else, but not believe in Jesus, and I still live like crazy. No, you do. there's things we do and do not do. And uh, he started pointing that out. And he wrote to them that, you know, Jesus is coming back. Now, when these guys said Jesus is coming back, 
they literally thought, he's coming right back. In fact, the early church, I think they really thought like when he says, I'm leaving, you know, it's like, you should be back in a week or two. <laughs> you know, you know figure, figuring out a few things, pay some bills. I don't know what he's doing. He's going to come back, get some milk. He's going to come back. And, uh, and they were shocked, I think, to discover months, years into this, just a handful of years, that he wouldn't come back right away. Because remember, the early Christians, they all started this big commune, right? Big Christian, we love Jesus, commune, everybody's selling stuff, they're all hanging out. Why? Well, Jesus is coming right back. And we all thought Jesus was coming back in the next few months. Who needs all the junk they got, right? They'd sell stuff, extra stuff, sacrifice, sell extra homes, empty extra bank accounts. I don't think they'd sell their uh, snowmobiles, though. No, too much of a sacrifice. But uh, <laughs> so they're all hanging out, and of course he's not coming back right away. And eventually persecution comes; they scatter everywhere, which is good because the gospel starts getting uh, scattered everywhere. But these people are new Christians, and they're still hearing; they're first hearing this idea that Jesus is coming back. And even to the disciples, I think it took a little while before it really started dawning on them by revelation that this was going to be a while. We'll get to it eventually but they're still pretty much in the mode of, he's coming back, right? He's coming right back. It's been 10, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever deal is, but it's, it's got to be any day now, right? No way do they think you and I would be still sitting here talking about this, I promise you. So personally, I'm glad he waited so we could get in on it. Yeah. Hallelujah. So, uh, so anyway, so he's telling this, and, and this is where he wrote in the first letter, you know, look, it's, no one's going to know when this is going to happen. So we talked about that last time. Don't let people tell you Jesus is coming back next Thursday at 4 o'clock because I figured it out in the Bible with some biblical math or some other moronic thing. Nobody knows, all right? Anybody tells you they know, they're a moron. Straight up. I don't care who it is. They're a moron. Nobody knows. It was very clear. Nobody will know. So... Uh, he says, but you don't have to be worried about it. Uh, when it comes, we're going to be ready. The thing is that we should just be ready. Uh, and they were wondering, you know, what happens to the people who've died? Because they thought Jesus is coming right back. Well, Fred just died. Well, he's going to miss it. Paul said, no, 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 he's not going to miss anything. Because when the Lord comes back, the trump of God shall sound, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are remaining will be caught up together with him in the air, this idea of the rapture, all the stuff that he's talking about. Uh, and, and he basically, so he wraps up the first letter. So, it's just a few months later that uh, he has to write the second letter because a bunch of people are going around saying, hey, Jesus came back already. And now they're all freaked out. What do you mean he came back? Where is he? Well, I don't know. He's somewhere out there. I don't know where he's at, you know, but uh, he's back. That's what we all heard. And so now they're all freaking out and they're troubled. Doesn't make any sense because what happened to the... We all get out of here and stuff. And what is this? Jesus came back and stuff like that. So Paul has to write the second letter to calm them down. So that's where we're going to jump in now. So these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, are literally written back to back. And that's where we're going to jump in now. First Thessalonians, the first chapter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. By the way, he always would start out his letters generally, very politely, and encouraging, before he'd slap him upside the head. 
The only time he really didn't do it, as far as I can, well, Corinthians, he kind of got into him right away, which is coming up. But Galatians, he starts right out. He's mad as a hornet, man. He's, you know, he says, these guys are preaching false doctrines. I hope they all go to hell. I mean, he's mad right out of the get-go, all right? Well, he's starting out very politely here, and he's encouraging them. We hear good things about you guys. You're loving each other. Praise God for that. He says, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and, and faith and all the persecution and trials you are enduring. Now, we don't know what those are. Uh, my best guess is it was, it was pretty severe. Uh, we do know eventually it gets virtually intolerable. I mean, people are, are being thrown to the lions and all this kind of stuff. I don't think we're, at, we're there yet, but uh, people are being, you know, they're being roughed up pretty badly. Uh, and uh, so anyway, he's encouraging them because the pagans didn't like the fact that Christianity was starting to replace their pagan gods. And as we'll see as we get back in the book of Acts, a lot of it was based just on money because a lot of these people would spend money buying these books and rituals and stuff for these pagans and they'd go to the pagan temples and give money. Uh, you know, they'd buy the idols and stuff like that. Well, when these people started realizing, hey, this is costing us money, they got really mad. So they started really ramping up the persecution uh, against Christians. Nothing hits people like money, 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 all right? So it wasn't really so much about theology, it was just about the cash. Anyway, so they're suffering, he's encouraging them. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, which again, I still think at this point they have a real sense that this is extremely imminent. And then he writes, now listen to these next words. This is, this is almost a little shocking. Uh, you, you won't find this, these verses posted on Facebook <laughs> with pretty pictures. Listen, listen to what he says. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Ouch. Now, you have to understand, there's a lot of millennials today who are just totally convinced that Jesus is just another version of another way to get to God. Christians, I mean, they, they believe in Jesus, but, you know, it's okay, whatever you believe in. We're all, all going to wind up in heaven. There's really no such thing as hell. There's actually, you would never say anything that God's going to punish anybody. Oh, no, they would just, ah, they go crazy on that kind of stuff. And they are convinced that any such talk is absolutely anti-biblical and anti-grace, which is absurd. I mean, if anybody would just read, read this, and uh, in fact, I was going to do a little survey on, on Facebook today. Or I was going to quote this and say, where did, where did this come from? I was going to give a bunch of options. I thought, I'll just make a bunch of people mad. <laughs> I was curious why they would come up, but not that I have a problem making people mad, but I just blew it off. Anyway, uh, you know, talk like this is, whoa, that's very severe. You know, these, clearly a guy who writes like this doesn't understand grace, which is absurd because who wrote about grace? This guy. Okay, so there is something to be said for a strong message about not obeying the gospel. Now, in our context as Americans, this sounds incredibly harsh. 
You know where it doesn't sound harsh? Is if we were to get up right now and we were get, get beamed in, beam me up, Scotty, and they'd beam us up in the middle of territory held by ISIS. And, I mean, what's going over there is, is stunning. I mean, they're virtually trying to exterminate Christianity from the face of the earth. They're killing little girls, children, cutting off heads, burning people alive. It, it, they are suffering. You know, th- these guys would relate to these words, all right? And then Paul's writing, he says, look, he will punish those who do not know God, do not obey the Lord Jesus. And they will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut up from his presence and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at those who have believed. You see, you got to put things in context. Context is really important if you're going to understand the Bible. You wouldn't lead with this. You, nobody would put up a bill, well. <laughs> yes, they would, because there's some crazy people in Green Bay. But generally, you don't put up billboards that say, hey, God's going to send anybody to hell. Of course, in town, we've actually had idiots like that. Uh, you wouldn't take this verse and go knocking on door to door and say, hey, God's going to destroy people with everlasting damnation if you don't believe. This is not exactly the way to win friends and influence people. Is there a side of this that is true? Yes, it, it is true, but you have to put it in context. They are under terrible suffering. I don't know how they're suffering at this point compares to what's going on in the Middle East right now. Maybe it's the same. I don't know. Again, I don't know what level. It's going to get really bad. Like I said, thrown to the lions, killing their children. Uh, Nero, he was just a sick, narcissistic monster, would take people who claim to be Christians, dip them in wax. You can imagine how comfortable that was, hot boiling wax, and then hang them in his gardens and light them and use them for human candles. I mean, the guy was an animal. To people like that, the idea of someday God's going to straighten this thing out and kick some butt and put things right is a comforting word. Can you understand that? So from that concept, this word is, oh, wow. God is going to straighten this thing out and he's going to make it right. So again, if you read something just like this in context of the United States of America, all this freedom and stuff, nobody's bothering anybody, you know, except politicians bothering everybody. Uh, you, you would think this is really harsh and this can't be right. And you know, what, what are you saying? What a terrible thing to say. Again, we wouldn't lead with something like this. You don't take, Paul didn't go around using this as his message to preach the gospel because every time we read him preach, preach the gospel, he never talks like this. But in the context of their suffering, what he's saying is, hey, there's a day coming. God will set this right and punish evil people who are rebelling against the gospel of Christ. So, does that help at all? All right. <laughs> context, people. Context. You've got to put everything in context. All right, he says, uh, um, on, he's going to do this on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. With what in mind? that someday Jesus is coming back to set everything straight. So knowing that, and in our context today, it's a much different context, but our context would be, look, everybody's going to die, right? You got to take it seriously. You need to keep, live the kind of life so that you're ready to go in case you kick off on the way home tonight 
which I always hate when I say that. One time I said that and some lady kicked off on the way home. Felt like I killed her or something, you know. It's it horrifying, man. It took me days to get over it. But I didn't do it, I was just talking. All right, because anybody can go, right? Anybody can go, we need to live a lives ready. So that's what he's saying. Look, this is all gonna come to an end. We pray that you can live the kind of life that God will make you worthy of his calling and that his, by his power he can bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Now those of you who attend on Sunday mornings on a regular basis, praise be to God, you know that I just did a whole series from this verse talking about how God will by his power bring to fruition every desire for goodness. And if you remember, I do the very complicated chart of good versus bad. How good is good, bad is very bad. And how we need to focus on building good desires in our life. And that's what Paul's talking about. I'm praying for you guys that God will fan your desire for goodness, which is something we all need to do. Make no mistake, the constant battle that is warring in all of us is no small deal. There is a part of you, it's the old nature, that doesn't want anything to do with God. It's as real as I'm standing here. And it will fight you, it will mess with you, uh, it will cause you to desire things you shouldn't desire, do things you shouldn't do, say things you shouldn't say, think things you shouldn't think. It is, the only way you get past that is you die. All right, if you're alive, that battle is still going. And Paul talked, he talked about it when he wrote to the Galatians. He said, look, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does that mean? If you don't walk in the spirit, though you may be a devout believer in Jesus, you will wind up walking in the flesh. And that's obvious. And he goes through this list of all the nasty stuff people are capable of. And that's even what Christians are capable of. Some uh, you've seen, some of you have lived out yourself. You know, it doesn't take much uh, it's a shockingly fine line between <laughs> what it takes to really be a man or a woman of God and it doesn't take much. And, and in fact, it can be rather shocking how quickly you can snap back into something you really shouldn't do. What happens when you do that? You repent. You ask God to forgive you. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Even me preaching this stuff, I still, oh, I've got to keep reminding myself. You know, I should have said that. I should have made a fascinating, you know, you want to strangle somebody to death or whatever the different thing that you think and think, you know, I, I need to pray more. <laughs> Apparently, I'm not being very spiritual. And it doesn't take much. Man, I think I'm a spiritual guy. Next minute I know, I'm mad as a hornet over something stupid. I was really mad as a hornet by something this morning. What was it? You left. Some business. Businesses make me backslide, man. I'll tell you. I got to just talk, toss some moron out of business. And they send you to some, <laughs> it had to be India. And they couldn't understand the lady. May I help you? What? May I help you with your problems? <laughs> Businesses. After I got done, I thought, I need to pray more. <laughs> it doesn't take much. I live on the edge just like everybody else. That's why we have to be vigilant. And Paul talks about this vigilance. And he says, I'm praying that God will empower you to live out goodness because when you walk on the good side, you're full of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which means suffering for a long time. If you find yourself on the rare occasion <laughs> to have a short fuse, probably not praying as much as you should be praying. 
reading the scriptures. Anyway, so we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gets to the reason for the letter. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, which he wrote about in that first letter, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. We didn't say that. People are saying we said it. Don't do that. We've taught you how this stuff must happen. And he goes into it in more detail. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Who is this man? The Antichrist. That's really fascinating what he's talking about here because this is fairly early Christianity. The book of Revelations, which we will eventually get to, it's the last one. Somebody asked me, will you be getting into that in the next few months? Oh, no. <laughs> it, it may be a little while before we get there. I don't know how soon, but my guess is a while. So anyway, in the book of Revelation, that's when uh, John writes of this Antichrist that is going to come and some Pretty vivid detail. So how do they know about this at this point? Well, the truth is, and, and we saw this when we studied the book of Daniel. Daniel the prophet in the Old Testament talks about this last day when this character, they didn't call him the Antichrist because they didn't use that phrase back then, but this man would come and set, him up, set himself up as God Daniel saw this toward the end. It doesn't become really clear to us until we read the book of Revelations. I just find it so interesting that it was pretty clear to these guys at this point. So I don't know if it was from uh, coming to conclusions from reading the book of Daniel or was the Holy Spirit revealing to them at this point you know, what was going to happen because by the time we get to the book of Revelations, we're reading this, we're going, oh my goodness, how awful is that? To everybody else, we're like, yeah, we've been hearing about this for a long time. Isn't that interesting? So anyway, he says, look, we know the day of the Lord isn't going to come until this Antichrist creature comes along and causes all this problem. And he reminds him about this. He says, this guy will oppose, put the scripture up, let's see, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This we do know from the book of Daniel, this guy who will do this, and certainly we see it in more detail when we get to the book of Revelations. Again, stunning to me that they were so... Because what he basically says, look, you guys know this stuff. And what's fascinating to me is up to this point, nobody wrote anything about it. How are we supposed to know but that's why we have the Bible, you know, so we're reading these letters. Uh, and again, they hadn't been Christians all that long. And uh, just in the few months they were there with them, he must have been teaching them all this stuff. He says, now, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you all these things? And I'm thinking, really? And now we're just reading about it now? I don't know, it just kind of irritates me. Anyway, and then he says this, and now you know what is holding him back. Holding who back? 
the Antichrist. And you know who's holding him back. And my response to him is, we do? Because I have no idea who he's talking about. Uh, this is one of these things in the scriptures that you read on occasion that you just... <laughs> really, you couldn't just write another sentence? <laughs> Fill in the gaps. You know, you, got, you, got, you guys know what I'm talking about, he says. And we're reading 2,000 years ago going, what? What are you talking... It's like, because he's based on conversations that they had. And he just points to, well, you know what I've been telling you, and you know who's holding him back, and, and he doesn't say. I'm going to give you the theories in just a second. But he doesn't say. Anyone who says they know, doesn't know. And I find it fascinating. I love reading these, because i got to prepare for all this stuff. <laughs> Read all these, you know, people coming up with all their, you know, theories and all these theologians and stuff. And they all contradict each other. Well, they can't, they can't all be right. <laughs> a bunch of people are wrong. <laughs> they don't really know. Apparently, it's not as clear, or everybody would understand what this is. But again, it's part of the, we're going to run into this in a couple of other places in the New Testament as we go through it. What do you do when you get to a place when you're really not sure what they're talking about? You just admit it. We really don't know. I don't know what the, that's what irritates me most about reading these commentaries. Really, you just can't admit, I don't know, right? But they all go into this, well, this means, and they go through all these theories and all this, and they're like, oh, seriously, you don't know that. Anyway, then, you know, it's like me having a conversation, you know, I, I hate the stupid carpeting because it looks like an acid trip gone bad. <laughs> all right? So I write you in a letter, well, you know what I said about the carpeting? And then 2,000 years later, people are going, I wonder what he meant about the carpeting. It could have held some special power for him. I mean, at that point, you're totally guessing, right? Because I didn't write what I said. I just said, you remember what I said. This is what he does here. Now, having ranted on that for a moment, let's go into some of the theories. So something is holding back this Antichrist to be revealed. They all know who it is. He didn't say. So here are the theories. <laughs> One of them, and this, these are highly educated theologians. One of them said, well, he's talking about the Pope. The Pope? How do you get the Pope from this? And he's got all this theories on it. Oh, seriously, dude. So I don't, I don't think it's about the Pope. First of all, there wasn't any Pope. <laughs> I'm freaking all you Catholics, but seriously, that didn't even come up for hundreds of years before somebody thought, you know, let's come up with a Pope. So they didn't have all that stuff. Made all that stuff up later. So it's, it has nothing to do with a Pope. Who could be holding it back? Uh, they, some say, well, it's the church that's holding him back. That that's why people would argue that at, during, at some point in the uh, book of Revelation, during the tribulation that comes, that it says we will be caught up together with the Lord, that that will happen at the beginning of the tribulation, which is what I vote for, all right? Uh, or at least halfway through before the Antichrist really becomes clear because he can't finally be clear until the church is taken out of the way. Again, I vote for either one of those. 
I don't want to be here when all kinds of crazy starts hitting the face of the earth with this Antichrist character. Uh, it could be that. The only problem with that is the church is always referred to in what gender? Female. Now, there's only two. You had a 50-50 chance. Was, <laughs> what gender could he be talking about? Church is always referred to in the female gender. And he says, here, that is he. So... Could he refer to the church as a he at this point? Maybe. I don't know. And neither do these people writing on all this stuff. Uh, another one would say that it's the Holy Spirit. Well, that would make sense, at least gender-wise, that the Holy Spirit has to be removed before all this stuff happens. Okay. I don't know. You know, we do know there's still people who get saved during the tribulation. Can you get saved without the Holy Spirit? That kind of messes with your theology, doesn't it? So I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, and I'm sure there's other theories out there. You can read them. <laughs> Something's holding it back. So, and they all know we don't. So uh, you know who's holding it back, I told you, so that he will be revealed at the proper time. You can't just say it. So something is holding it back. If I were to guess, what, what would you think? Who do you think he's talking about? Anybody have, just out of curiosity. I can't talk to people over there. Yell out. You think it's the Holy Spirit? Jesus. No, Jesus is already gone. The what? Father God is going to be removed? Nobody says that he can't be. Oh, and you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the. Oh, so, so you think it's the Heavenly Father holding him back. That's who he's talking about, the he. Oh, I didn't even read that nice bunch of theories. Very good. Uh, maybe that's what he's talking about. God's holding him back. I don't know. Something's holding him back. All right. Let me ask you this Is it worth. What? The Pope. I look like a Muppet. Uh, let me ask you, is this something worth fighting over? <laughs> Definitely not. That's why I'm not real big on this end time stuff where people go at each other's throats debating stuff. Because as intense as you might think it is, you don't know some of this stuff. All right? Anyway, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Well, that's true. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. Well, that, how can the, how the Father be taken out of the way? See, so it can't be that. That's why some go back to the Holy Spirit, right? But the Holy Spirit can be taken out of the way? How does that, I don't know. No say. All right. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays and power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those that are perishing. And we read about this in the book of Revelations. This guy is going to do all this powerful, crazy, miracle stuff. The whole world is going to be convinced that this antichrist creature who's coming along is literally God, divine being. 
I mean, it's all CNN and Fox, all these people, just, you know, they're all going to believe. I mean, everybody's going to buy into it because what he does is going to be stunning. Clearly, we've never had anybody like that. This guy is yet to come. It's like, again, I hope we're all out of here before all this stuff happens. It's, we'll get to it when we get to the book of Revelations. Again, what's stunning to me is that he's talking about it in such detail here that we don't read into the Revelation of John. Nobody else seems to write about all this stuff. It's kind of interesting. Anyway... Uh, he's going to use all these signs and powers and all the ways that wickedness deceives those that are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. And there you have it. Wow. So that's his writing. It really fits hand in hand like a glove with the teachings in Revelation. What's just stunning to me is how many years before that is written, he's talking about in such detail. And they all knew about it, so fascinating. Anyway, so he goes on, uh, which by the way, uh, another reason I don't get all crazy on this stuff is the point of all of this writing, whenever they talked about the end times, is really just one point, be ready. And the real point here is, look, this stuff hasn't happened yet, so Jesus hasn't come yet. He's just trying to calm them down. But we're supposed to live lives that are ready. And it usually says, therefore, seeing how these things are going to happen, whatever they describe, and they'll, they'll talk about some crazy stuff in, in various epistles here that's going to happen in this end day. Everybody else is this really intense, crazy period that is coming. Again, I hope we're not here for. Uh, but it's, it's going to be really intense. He says, no, seeing what's going to happen, we need to live the kind of lives that we're ready for whatever comes our way. That's really the point. Uh, it's not so we can fight over the minute debates of whatever these phrases mean. All right, so then he says, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. We, of course, are limited strictly to the letter version of it because we weren't there for the word of mouth. All right? Um, da, 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 da. Which, by the way, is the importance of reading. We say, why do you read the Bible, especially the New Testament? Is so you can hear what these guys were saying. They were t they're talking about stuff that's really important to living out the Christian experience. If you try to live out the Christian experience and you never read this stuff, the only time you read is when you come to church and listen to me blather about it, uh, you're really cheating yourself. Again, you don't have to read tons of it. It's just bits and pieces, you know, every day. Just take a little piece. Just read what they're saying about something. Uh, it helps to keep you centered because that's why he's saying you guys really need to hear this stuff. Uh, and that's why he encouraged them to read. The, he told the church, read my letters to the other churches, you know, because he knew eventually what would be happening as we are doing today. Uh, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Da, 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 I already said that. Verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace give us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and, be, and strengthen you in every good word and deed. So he's basically just encouraging, look, Jesus hasn't come yet. You know, stuff hasn't happened that needs to happen. Just keep doing the right things. Loving God, loving each other, making sure this is very real in your life. Now, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. 
He's asking for their prayers. Why? Pray that we, we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not everyone has faith. Paul received just an incredible amount of opposition. And it, it's stunning, uh, the forces that he was up against. And he was always cherishing their prayers for him, for the struggles that, that Paul would have. And, uh, and Paul's trying to preach the gospel everywhere. And you can imagine, you know, as, as we read in the book of Acts, the people that opposed him and tried to kill him and stuff, it was, it was very, very real to him. Uh, so he says, not everybody has faith. That's an understatement. Verse three, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one, speaking of Satan. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters. So he's gonna finish up here with some generic instructions to the church. He wrote this in his first letter. What really ticked him off were Christians who were lazy bums. For some reason, it really horked him. And he thought it was a terrible testimony. And again, maybe these people were like that because they figured, why do anything? Because Jesus is coming, right? I don't know, but it's something he deals with rather strongly, that, and he really gets into it here again. So this is what he says. Brothers and sisters, Keep away from every heathen. Is that what it says? Every, every unbeliever. Is that what it says? No. Every nasty person. No? Oh, you have a different Bible than mine. There you go. Oh, keep away from every believer. <gasps> We're supposed to keep away from people who are believers? Sometimes, yes. It's a concept called shunning, is the phrase. And it really messes with people, especially for the crowd that everything's love and pieces, peace, pieces, love and peace, and we all kiss the flowers, and Jesus is a hippie in heaven, and everything's cool. And God should love everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do. God made you the way you are, and it's not your fault. Da, 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 da. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches some pretty strict discipline in the kingdom of God. There's various reasons why people who claim to be Christians, you should have nothing to do with. We'll get to those. But one that he says right here, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. He's talking about slackers. These people who just wouldn't earn their own bread and pay their own way. Verse seven, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night. What did he do? He made tents. We read about it in the book of Acts just before we came here. He's a tent maker. He literally, by his own hand, made tents and sold them in the marketplace. We think tents, what is what is that, you know, because nobody uses tents anymore. But back then, that was a major commodity. You know, it's like him saying, man, I, I, I worked at the used car lot, selling cars, because everybody needed cars. You know, that's, that's what he did. He worked, and he made tents, and people bought the tents, and he earned his own money. And it wasn't until Timothy and these other guys came uh, that Paul was able to just preach because he made those guys make the tents. <laughs> they were part of his team. And he didn't take money from anybody, okay? Even though he had every right 
to do so. So he says, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. As ministers of the gospel, they had every right to be supported by those to whom he's ministering to. In fact, he writes about this in more detail in the upcoming letter to the Corinthians, which is coming up next. Um, But we did this in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So that's really, we're talking tough love here. I mean, he literally said, if a person isn't willing to work, don't feed him. Let him go hungry. It's not our job as Christians just to feed people who are slackers. I know that sounds terrible, but it's true. And he's talking about believers. Even believers don't do this for them. You think they would get a pass, but he thought no such pass. Now, there are people who work and struggle and they can't make ends meet and life is hard and they're struggling and yes, certainly we feed the poor and all that stuff that Jesus told us to do. But Paul was very clear about this. When you get around believers who just won't get a job and they're just sucking the brains out of everybody and trying to get everybody to support them and give them money and help them with whatever their troubles, uh, at some point, tough love says no. And if you get really into it, you're not even supposed to hang with these people because they are being idle. They tend to be very disruptive because they have time all day long to criticize everybody else because they're not working. Most of us who work for a living don't have the time to analyze what everybody else is doing and what everybody else is saying, what everybody else is wearing, what everybody else is thinking, okay? So he was very strong about that. Uh, And he goes on. He's not done. He's still horked. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive, that they're not busy, that they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Get a job. That's what he's telling them. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. (laughs) And then he says, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction. (laughs) I mean, he literally says, mark them. Find out who the slackers are. Put a big slacker sticker on their forehead. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't feed them. Don't help them. Don't let them be disruptive. Mark them. Keep an eye on them. Wow. I mean, these Thessalonians have some serious slacker problems. So, keep tabs on who they are, and then he goes on in his love and compassion and says, do not associate with him. He already told us this. He's saying it again. I think he's highly irritated. (laughs) Do not associate with him in order that they may feel bad. Oh, my gosh. That's different than what we hear today, right? No one should ever feel bad. You should never say anything that would make someone feel bad. Oh my gosh, the worst thing in America is that somebody would feel bad. So you have all these politically correct police running around, freaking out over people who make people feel bad. Okay, I'll just confess here. 
This is not political. Vote for whoever you want. I don't care. And I'm not saying who I'm voting for. But I will say, I find Donald Trump highly entertaining. And one of the things I love about him is he just doesn't care what he says. <laughs> now, he says some pretty mean things. And he says some hurtful things. And it's, ow, and that makes people feel bad. And he says, so what? Shut up. I, for one, appreciate a little of that instead of all this. You can't say anything that makes anybody feel bad. Really? For heaven's sakes. Paul said, you got people who are doing bad. You should go out of your way to make them feel bad. That's <laughs> what he says. Well, I can't possibly be right. I don't know. That's what he says. <laughs> and the other thing I appreciate, my wife disagrees with me 100%, by the way. Uh, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, he's a psycho, I know, but I gotta tell you. I, I love the fact, because people don't listen to what people say, they microanalyze every word that comes out of their mouth. That's what these do. Whenever politicians, they've done this for, if you paid attention to politics for decades, presidents can give up and give amazing speeches like they never heard what they said, they look for one phrase that was this not said quite right, and they go psycho on them. And I have always been, as a public speaker, I gotta tell you, there are times things fly out of my mouth, not exactly worded the right way. <laughs> anybody who does what I do, for anybody who speaks publicly knows what I'm talking about. You think any public speaker would say, thank God, that there's somebody attacking this insanity, because they just wait for one phrase, of, well, yeah, well, Pastor, you said such and such. Yeah, but what I was saying was, I don't care what you said. I mean, I've literally had people say this in my face. Because they don't listen to what you're saying. They analyze any phrase they can find that's offensive. And then I don't like that. It's highly upsetting and frustrating. So I like crazy people like Trump because they're just, blah, yeah. Well, you said such as, yeah, that's not what I meant. He goes on. I'm going, yay! <laughs> okay, now, he might be totally crazy. I don't know. I just, as a speaker, I enjoy every word. Insulting they may be. Moving on. <laughs> and don't write me about it. I want to hear it. It's just my personal, as a speaker, perspective. I hope this nonsense gets all ripped up and quit analyzing every little word that comes out of somebody's mouth. And these stupid politicians, all of them. That's all the work they're doing to each other. Have you noticed this? I think it's disgraceful. Well, he said, well, he said that I said that they're all innocent. Stop! I hate that. That's not life. Listen to what people say. Don't analyze everyone. What he said in 1927, that's such a thing. Well, probably not born in 1927, but whatever. Goodness gracious, I hate that stuff. Listen to what people are saying today. Now, if you listen to what they say and don't like what they say, I'm all for that. Pfft, tell them to stuff it. I have no problem telling people to stuff it. I do this on my own regularly. In my own quiet home. <laughs> Yelling at the TV. Shut up, you're a moron. I have no problem doing that. All right? I just don't like this micro every word and phrase. It just drives me crazy. All right, so... And do everything you can to make them feel ashamed. 
Yet, and here's the line, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Remember, he's writing to Christians, about other Christians. There is some tough love that sometimes has to kick in where you get in people's faces and you make them toe the line and you pull away from them and you don't talk with them, you don't hang with them, you don't help them out anymore. They are mortified, by the way, when you do this and are convinced you are totally unchristian. But in point of fact, you're actually obeying the Bible, but you can't treat them as an enemy. They're not our enemies. They're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like a kid. You know, anybody have children? (laughs) There's times where they're less than encouraging (laughs) in your life. And you just want to lay hands on them, all right? And and you, you got to bring the hammer down, whatever that means for you. Hopefully it's not literally a hammer. Pastor, you said a hammer. See, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> you said we can hit a kids with a hammer. I did not say that. You said when the hammer falls. You see what I'm talking about? Literally, this is what people do. I'm on a rant. I'm trying to get off that rant train. My wife's just shaking her head. She's going to be, shut up and move on, Mark. That's all she's looking at me. Shut up and move on. That's the shut up and move on, Mark, look. (laughs) But children, sometimes you're disciplined. Don't mean you hate them. They're convinced you hate them, right? We don't give them everything they want. If you love your, the Bible says if you give a child everything they want and never discipline them, that's when you hate them. It's true. Well, I I can go whatever they want. No, 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 that's, that's being hateful. If you're a parent, it makes you a great grandfather. <laughs> Have some more sugar. Okay, bye. See you later. Why are they so wired? I don't know. Wow, I didn't do anything. What I do? You know, just... <laughs> but when you're the parent, you got to be <laughs> more strict. All right. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Of course, we cannot see it because we don't have the original document. But to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Boom. So he's done writing to the Thessalonians. We have nine minutes. All right, so let's jump back now to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 18 and now verse... 18. Now, Paul stayed on in Corinth. Now, remember, he's writing this from Corinth. He's writing back to the Thessalonians, the one letter, and right away, he's got to write another one right away letter, and just basic Christianity. And again, lots of information about the end times, but uh, not, not filling in all the gaps for us. But, uh. So he stayed on Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. It's kind of interesting. He's basically uh, trying to get back here. You know, Syria's over, over here. So he wants to sail back here, but he's here. He's taking off, and he starts to sail. All right. Now, and he's accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, this couple that he meets in, I believe he meets them in Corinth, right? And they were also tent makers, Yep, with Paul. They're also tent makers. They become buds. They're, they're one of the big names in the uh, Christian community, this couple. It's kind of interesting. Usually you just hear about the guy. Uh, and there's a f- few places where it's the woman who's very 
predominant mentioned, uh, deaconesses that are mentioned. It wasn't always just men. Uh, and here's a couple who ministers powerfully together, Priscilla and Aquila. So it's interesting. So they join up with Paul. Uh, and, but it says before he sailed, he had his hair cut off. At Century or whatever that word is, whatever the town is, and I never could find it. I'm sure somebody smart knows where it is. I don't know, somewhere. Somewhere he gets a haircut before he goes back here. I did, I was looking up, I said, where the heck is this? I couldn't find it. Anyway, I didn't Google it. I should have just Googled it. I would have found it in three seconds, but I didn't really care. All right, so anyway, so what difference does it make? Right? There's things that matter. I'm not gonna sit there and spend hours teaching you on stuff that doesn't matter. Just, you wanna know? Google it yourself. Wherever that was, he got his hair cut. Now, so he shaves his hair. I guess he shaves it. It's just that he had cut off. I presume it was shaved off entirely because of a vow he had taken. Again, we don't know what they're talking about. We don't know why, and I spent all afternoon researching this, and they got this theory, and that theory, and the truth is nobody knows what he's doing. What is, what is he doing? Why did he shave his head? All right, now, a couple of things. Now, the common thing, they say, well, it's because he had taken a Nazarite vow as a Jew. The problem with that theory is that's not how you do a Nazarite vow. The Nazarites had to do whatever they do, and they swore not to uh, drink wine or anything grape juice, which is confusing because, so did he quit taking communion this whole time? I mean, why would you take an Azurite vow? Say, well, he could drink grape juice. No, you can't. I mean, when they took it, they said you couldn't even have a raisin. They're really serious. <laughs> no juice, man. And, uh, and then you do what it is, and then you have to come to Jerusalem. And then in Jerusalem, before the priest, that's when you shave your head. Well, he's shaving his head way over here because he took some vow. I don't know what he's talking about. Why did he take a vow? Now, this is highly confusing to me. Remember, Paul went absolutely nuclear when he was writing about people who tried to insist Christians have to live like Jews. I mean, he blew that to smithereens. Then he takes Timothy with him. And what was the first thing he did to Timothy? He had him circumcised. <laughs> what? After all that. And then a couple of chapters later, now he's taking a vow, like a Jewish vow, and shaving his head, you know, like Pastor Betts. That's what he's saying. Are you in, are you in a vow? You were in a big vow, yeah, okay. <laughs> to never grow hair. I'm kind of working on that vow myself, actually. Uh, so I, I, I don't know, except, except this. We'll cheat. Let's, let's jump over to the last few minutes here. I have more to say about this. I'll, I'll ramble when we come back next week. Pontificate. But just in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verse 20. Now, this is the next letter Paul's going to be writing, and, and not too far away. Um, and he writes this, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. Keep going. Next verse. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. 
though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those who are not having the law. And he goes on next. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. So here we read in Corinthians that Paul went out of his way to do whatever he had to do to win people to Jesus. It seems confusing. It certainly seems contradictory. The reason he had Timothy circumcised is because he was going to minister to some Jews, and they knew that uh, his father was Jewish or whatever. Uh, so they, they had that. Uh, there is an argument that can be made, although it's, it's a little cryptic, and, and it's like this. And there were many Jews who actually believed this, Jewish Christians. They believed, and you really got a sense reading from Peter and these different guys, that when they told Paul and those guys that they could go tell non-Jews that they didn't have to do all this, all they had to do was believe in Jesus, they never brought that home. The implication is very strong that Jewish Christians, a true, devout Jewish Christian, is still Jewish. And he still has to obey the law and still has to do the ceremonies, and still has to be circumcised, and still has to do the cleansings and the vows and all these other kind of things. And some people say, well, that's what Paul's arguing. Even though he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, saying, you don't have to do this, that he to himself said, but I'm Jewish and I do have to do it. So I guess that's probably the most logical explanation. Uh, but, but it is a little confusing, because did he ever go nuclear on people who insisted that Christians had to do this, but technically he was talking to non-Jewish Christians. So maybe that's what he was doing or just what he said there in Corinthians. He's, he's just doing whatever he had to do to win people. So what vow did he take? I don't know. Why is he even taking a vow? It doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus said, you've heard pay your vows to the Lord, but I say to you, don't make vows. His half-brother James wrote, don't make vows. And then Paul comes and he makes a vow. So I don't know. Some of this stuff, I don't know. I don't understand. There are people who argue. I have a brother who argues, oh, Christians should make vows. I, I have a brother. When Jesus and James say don't, I think you shouldn't. But then Paul did, so I, I don't know. What, this is, some of it's a little confusing to me. I don't quite get it. Now, some would argue, well, you make vows. When you got married, you made wedding vows. Okay, I made a vow. Uh, you know, people would say, when you do Lent, and you say, I'm going to give up Snickers bars, or I'm going to force myself to go listen to Pastor Mark <laughs> on Wednesday night as my suffering <laughs> for the week. <laughs> so that's a vow. Okay, I guess. I don't know. The whole vow makes me confused. I just, I think as a guiding rule, you shouldn't go around making vows saying, God, I swear to you, I will do such and such and such. I just think that even when you do the Lent thing, you shouldn't swear to God you're not going to do something. Just the Bible says make your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to do something, do it. If you say, I'm going to give up snicker bars or I'm going to force myself to suffer under Pastor Gunger one hour a week on Wednesday nights, just say that's what you're going to do and do it. You don't need to be making crazy vows. Why the vow? The only thing you have got to assume based on what he just said, we're cheating by looking ahead, is that he would do whatever he had to do to relate to people. And that's a good lesson for us. You know, you got to try and relate to people. Now, there's limits to that. You don't go in to a bar and get drunk so you can 
witness to drunks, right? You, know, you don't go buy hoes so you can witness to prostitutes, right? <laughs> what? Yeah, you don't go to strip joints <laughs> to minister <laughs> to people in the strip joints. You know, I think there's some limits to this, okay? You actually run across, you don't have to be a Christian too long where you run into people like that who actually believe and they do all kinds of stuff that you think, what are you doing? Well, Paul says I do whatever I gotta do to win people to Jesus. I'm like, really? Yep. That's why I'm gonna go witness some drug addicts, praise God. He's like, really? I don't think that's what he meant. But anyway, I'm done. <laughs> Your obligation for this Lent is now complete. We'll see you next Wednesday. See you Sunday. Bye-bye. God bless.